And as you're going there, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you uh, for the chance to gather in the name of Jesus this morning to connect with those who are doing so with us online. God, we thank you for your word. We just come to it this morning, Lord, with open hearts, with open minds. And Lord, coming not as a critic of the scripture, but recognizing that your word holds authority over our lives, Lord. So we want to come humbly before you, ask you to speak to us, Lord, ask that you give us ears to hear. Ask, Lord, that the seed of your word would take root in our hearts and lives, Lord. We pray, God, just your blessing over this time and upon our church, Lord. And uh, God, I just think of our local governments and provincial governments, federal governments, Lord. We lift up these leaders in our nation, God. We pray your peace would be upon them, Lord. We pray that you'd give them wisdom and good counsel, Lord, that you would guide them and direct them in the decisions that they're making. And uh, God, we pray that we'd be able to go about peaceably gathering to worship you, Lord, and we ask your, your blessing on that. And so, God, we thank you that we can come and put you at the center of your church, Lord. You're the pastor. You're the shepherd of the sheep. You're the head of the body. We've come, Jesus, to worship you this morning. So, Lord, feed us from your word, we pray. Amen. Okay, sweet. Well, it's great to have you guys here with us. And uh, this morning, we are... Um, Diving into a new series in 1 Samuel, we finished up as a church uh, the book of Judges just a few weeks back and then kind of landed down in some different areas. But I mentioned this because to get a sense of the chronology of the Bible is kind of always helpful. So we go, well, if we've just come through Judges and we've gone, come through getting, you know, these famous stories of Gideon and Samson and all of these characters, and now we come to the book of Samuel, like what, what's the deal? Is this Hundreds of years later, what's going on? Well, actually, just so we get the lay of the land, Samuel and Judges, they overlay on top of one another, okay? So think about it this way. Samson, long hair dude, big muscles, and Samuel, contemporaries of one another, okay? Around at the same time. So, you know, the book of Judges, sometimes we're going through the Bible, we're getting little pictures from regional geographic areas of what was happening and so Samuel and Samson, their, their, their lives and ministries are happening in and around the same time. And when we were uh, looking at the book of Judges, uh, we, we closed off in the last five chapters uh, looking at two stories, which I call them like, they're amongst the most disturbing stories in the Bible. If you got to participate with us in those weeks, you're like, wow, those are really messed up. And I would say, yes, they are. And they're in the Bible to tell us that it's demonstrating some truths and some realities that at that time, Israel had no king. And everyone did as they saw fit. They, they lived doing as they pleased, whatever they wanted. God was supposed to be the king of the nation. Uh, but without being able to identify a physical king like the nations around them, uh, Israel lived like they had no king, even though the Lord was their king. And in a lot of ways, it's not unlike that in our world today, that people live, you know, like they did in the time of Judges, doing, thinking, I'll do whatever I please, whenever I want. You know, you, you, you see that in the, in the world, this common problem, I, we call it sin, right? The, the heart of rebellion that is in all of mankind, rebellion against God. It's our way of saying to the creator, we know more than you do. We know how to live better than you. We can live apart from you. We'd rather uh, live as we want to live than living according to how you instruct us to live. 
and according to your plan for us. Now, that was the problem 3,000 years ago in Israel, and it remains the problem of the world today. And what we saw in Judges was this, that as people turned their backs on the Lord and lived according to how they wanted to, it was catastrophic for their culture, for their nation, for people's families, for people's personal lives. And, um, and so that, that theme is coming right through into the book of Samuel. I just want to paint that picture for us a little bit. Now, between uh, uh, Judges and 1 Samuel in our Bibles, we've got this little book called Ruth. Great book. Do you love Ruth? It's awesome. Story of a, a Moabite woman who becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. Again, it's during that time when every man is seen as he does fit. So a, an Israelite family leaves the land of Israel, and they go and live amongst the Moabites, and, and these uh, Israelite sons marry Moabite women, and you have to go check out the story for yourself if you're not familiar with it. I know most of you are. So this Moabitess becomes a worshiper of God, and God redeems her. She is redeemed from her shame. She is redeemed from her poverty, from exclusion of the people of God, and there's this beautiful love story in the book of Ruth, Ruth between her and Boaz, and, and Ruth helps us see the line of David. That's part of what is accomp- being accomplished. It's like, as Israel has no king, and God is establishing a royal line, Ruth helps us see that work of God until Jesus comes. So we're not going to take a look at Ruth this morning. That's just kind of it, but you can go to our website and look it up in the archives, and you'll find teaching through Ruth, okay? Awesome story of redemption that also happens during the time of Judges. So Judges for Samuel, these books overlap. And when you think about just kind of culture and nations and people's living and doing as they see fit, you know, thinking about it myself, I'm like, yeah, that's probably like the highest value our culture has is its freedom to say, I want to do what I want to do and don't tell me, you know, how to live. You're not the boss of me. Who are you to judge me? Don't force your views on me. Don't tell me what to do. I will decide what is right. And everyone in our culture does as they see fit. And the sense of moral anarchy as we watch a culture do that is like growing. You can sense that just snowballing in our culture. So 1 Samuel is is a historical recounting of the kingship of Israel. Where did the kings of Israel come from? And we're being shown... uh, who God is and how God rules over his people, we're being shown what to look for when the anointed Messiah, the King of Kings, comes. This this book is to prepare us for Jesus, like the whole Bible. So this is a story of Israel's search for a king. We know this, that ultimately after Saul, David is going to be that man. He's going to be the picture of God's anointed pointing us to Jesus. And It's because Israel wants a king. And the truth is, you know, everybody wants a king. Like when you stop and and think about that, we want someone to guarantee our safety. We want someone to guarantee our security. We want someone to make us prosperous. We want someone to provide stability in our lives. And each of us, in some way or somehow, direct kind of a a heart towards kingship in our life. Maybe we like look to someone to be our king. Maybe we look to a marriage partner to be our king. The right partner, you know? Or maybe some look to money to be their king. 
or success or family work or others right now, what's it in our culture? It's the state, the government. Provide me with safety. Guarantee my income. Make me prosperous. Make me secure. And there's many in our culture who are worshiping the state almost as king. But here at this time, we read this, that, that there's no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And they're waiting for a king. And so the story, as we turn to the book of 1 Samuel, it begins with this very painful account of a woman's private grief. We get taken right into a household, and we find out what's happening again on the ground amongst the people of Israel. Let's check it out. Verse 1 says this. There was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So Hannah has no children, which is a tragedy. It's like the text wants us to know this, that in every age, you know, For a woman who desires to have children, to say she has no children is a very painful thing. There's mothers and women in the room, obviously, and and, or you know someone, maybe that's been your story, or you know someone who that's been their story. It's an incredible, painful thing that Hannah's womb is barren. She cannot have children. And obviously, like in an ancient culture, 3,000 years ago, that would maybe even be more shameful than it is today. I mean, even more shameful amongst the children of Israel because the children of Israel took very literally the commands of the Lord to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fulfill the earth. Fill the earth, And that was God's command. And he had attached to it his blessing. So a fruitless womb was associated with a lack of God's blessing. So this is a personal tragedy for this woman. It's, all, it's also, you know, nationally tragic because she, she should be participating with the people of God, giving birth, making babies. You know, God had promised Adam and Eve that one who would come would crush, he would be born of a woman and he would crush the head of a serpent. And so it was just like part of Israelite culture that there was this hope attached to the birth of every child. Because babies bring hope. And the hope was this, that that maybe my child, maybe this is the one that will crush the serpent's head. And so with the barren womb, Hannah is like excluded from participating in that. She's excluded as personally from the experience of motherhood, but she's excluded, you know, nationally from participating in the hope of the coming of the Messiah. And tragic in the midst of this, though her husband loved her, he takes another wife because they have no children. I mean, it just makes the whole matter the whole situation worse, and, and even more so that this woman is a baby machine. She's making babies. And now, look, I will say this. This is, as you read this, this is not the Bible like commending or rubber stamping polygamy, by the way. It's important to mention this, that it's like the Bible actually teaches against that. This is just the facts. This isn't like God's approval. This is just like reporting information of what was happening on, on the ground. And I love this. When, when the Bible tells history, it doesn't say, come in here and let me spray some sanitizer on that for you. Just rub it around. We'll clean it up. The Bible gives you the raw, real picture of what's happening in people's lives. And 
Every time you see polygamy in the scripture, it's like the realities are not going to be good for these people because they're doing something that they're participating in something that is not God's plan or God's design. And so we're going we're gonna to see that. So remember, there's no king. Everyone's doing as they see fit. So Elkanah takes a second wife. Now check it out, verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So we find out the Lord has actually closed this womb. Verse 6, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Then Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? This guy makes me laugh. I'm like, he is the classic picture of a clued out husband, isn't he? (laughs) This poor woman, not only is she barren, her sister wife is no friend to her. She's a rival. Uh, Peninnah is jealous of Elkanah's love for Hannah, and so she took pleasure in provoking. She took pleasure in irritating Hannah, and Hannah would be driven to this point of weeping and unable to eat. And so the family would go to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was to worship. And we see the love of this man for Hannah. He would give her a double portion to present to the Lord. And when Hannah would not eat, he'd try and console her and comfort her. And she was sensing this deep hopelessness for not having children and the torture of her rival. And Elkanah would try to comfort his wife. And he said, don't let your heart be sad. Here's a double portion. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Now, I just think this, like, you know, I have to admit on behalf of all husbands, sometimes us men say really stupid things to our wives. (laughs) Um, Knowing men from the ladies. You know, however well-intentioned he was, I think she would have traded him in for children. (laughs) Like, I was thinking about this, like, you know, if it's me or the kids, I, I... I said this in the first service, Lisa, so I'll just confess. I said, I might get traded in for the children, you know, if it came down to that. So as much as he loved it, I mean, there was a deep desire inside of her that was unfulfilled. And it's interesting that he's saying to her, look at, this is what he's saying. He's saying this, isn't my love for you enough to fill the void that's in your heart? Aren't I better than 10 sons? And you know, it's, it's amazing to think about this because we talk about this, that the human heart has a, a God-shaped vacuum. It, it has a void inside of it, and it cannot be filled by anything but the Lord. And so his offer to his wife, however well-intentioned it is, is simply not true because no human being can ever bear that responsibility to fulfill the void that is deep down inside of your heart. Only Jesus can do that. Only the Lord can satisfy the the deepest longings of the human heart. It's like 
To put that expectation for Hannah, to put that expectation on Elkanah, or for Elkanah to put that on himself or upon this relationship is, look, it's like to bear the responsibility of godhood. No human can take that. That's a crushing weight. No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. And it's interesting because you think about it, it's like, this is a man saying to a woman, isn't my love enough to satisfy you? It's like, hey, but I romance you. I like give you double portions. Uh, like, isn't, in, I think this is like our culture, right? It's like romance and sex, uh, a, a man or a woman will satisfy your deepest needs. But what we see here is this, is that it's like the deepest pains of a human being's heart cannot be met by another man or woman. And the void that is in the human heart is real, so people try different things to deal with it. Maybe it's relationship to relationship to relationship. Maybe to dull it, they turn to substance, narcotics or drugs or alcohol. Or they try to distract themselves from the pain that is deep inside their heart with you know, pursuits and possessions and experiences. But there is a deep longing in the human heart that can only be satisfied by a relationship with the living God. The human heart has this God-shaped void in it because you are made to know the Lord and to be known by Him. And because you are made to know Him and be known by Him, Jesus is the only one who is going to satisfy that deep, hunger in your heart. And so Elkanah offered up his love, but what Hannah needed was God. Check out verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. If you got a pen, maybe underline Hannah rose. It's key to this text. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah, Hannah rose. And Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost, beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So here's Hannah, she's barren. For her sister wife, Peninnah, it was a reason to mock her. For her husband, Elkanah, it was a reason to pity her. But for Hannah, it was a reason to pray, to seek the Lord. If God had closed her womb, then maybe God would open her womb. And verse 9 is key. It says this, that Hannah rose. She rose. The idea is that she moved from being in a position of being passive, of reacting to that which was happening in her life to a position of actively pursuing the Lord and specifically in the house of God, in the place of prayer. She resolved. She made a choice that in spite of her situation, she was going to seek God. And she begins to plead with God. She goes to the house of the Lord and she says, God, you've got to remember me. I'm asking you to look upon my affliction and to remember me. And and she perceives this, that God is a God, the living God is one who cares for his people, who listens to his people, who responds to broken people who call out to him. 
that he is compassionate, that he seeks us in our times, or sorry, that as we seek him in our times of desperation, he will respond. And Hannah had nowhere else to turn. She's got nowhere else to go. So she goes to the Lord. You ever got to that point in life? Nowhere else to go? I'm like thankful. Like those times are awful, but I am thankful that the Lord leads us to those places in those times. I, I, I was thinking back to a time when we were like dealing with a situation in our church and I'm like, I don't know how to, Lord, what is going on? And I was, I was here with Brian Colkman. I was at the back of the room back there. We were praying. Brian was over here kind of where you are, Jerry. And we were just praying and we were just praying. And man, a desperation came over us, came over me. And we cried out to the Lord. And then I remember all of a sudden, I'm like, it's done, man. It's like done. Like it's done. And five minutes later, boom, phone rings, this, that, 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 that. Lord worked it all out. I'm like, that is incredible. But it took desperation. Desperation. God heard. He was going to act. He was going to bring the solution. It was all him, but there was a desperation that had to come to bring us to the place of prayer to call out to him. And Hannah gets to that spot. She commits to the Lord that if, if she has a son, she will raise him according, according to the Nazarite vow. This just sounds like just like the story of Samson, not too far back to the book of Judges. She says this, if I have a son, no razor will touch his head. He's going to be committed to the house of the Lord to serve, dedicated to serve in the temple of God. God, if you answer my prayer, I will give this child back to you. I think, man, what a great heart of a parent right there. Say, God, you give me the kids, but I give them back to you. They're yours. They're yours. And it makes me think about prayer. You know, she seeks the Lord in desperation that, you know, prayer is not like it's not like she like mastered some technique here, like, oh, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, and then God will answer. It's not what happened. What happened is this, is she just poured out her soul to the Lord. That's what prayer is. God, just the invitation of God to pour out your soul to him because he listens, and sometimes you have to get desperate before we'll pour it out to God. Now, verse 12, it says this. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. I mean, this is crazy. This to me just shows you how bad things were in Israel when we say the priest is just assuming that a woman in her pain is probably crying out to the Lord is probably drunk. It's like, to me, that means this was going on regularly. And we're going to see this. We're going to see this when we deal with Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. I mean, they were like partying in the house of God and getting drunk all the, all the time. And here's Eli the priest. He's not even able to discern. This is a woman in desperate need seeking the Lord. He thinks she's drunk. And probably it's because his own sons were known for this behavior. Now, the other day, I was, I was here, I had the office door open, I was sitting at my desk, and I was working on a message, and usually I talk to myself when I'm working on a message, so I'm kind of like speaking from my heart, and my mouth is moving, but you won't hear me, and Blake looked through the office, he said, who are you talking to? I said, nobody, I'm talking to myself. Said, what are you doing that for? I said, I'm preparing a message. He didn't accuse me of being drunk, I'm glad of that. 
But uh, we had a laugh about it. Now, verse 15 says this, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So once they straighten this out, Eli blesses her, and then Hannah goes on her way, and the text tells her that she tells us that she was no longer sad. Now, this order is important. See, here's Hannah. She worshiped and she prayed and she sought God in spite of how she felt. Like if her feelings had run the show, she never would have gone to the house of God. She never would have uh, prayed. And I mean, it's like so often our 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 emotions, our feelings are driving whether we're seeking the Lord or not seeking the Lord. I mean, she felt awful. She's got terrible stuff going on in her life. She's probably depressed. There's no human solution. It's like easy to just wallow in that. But in this state, Hannah made a decision. I am going to the house of the Lord. I am going to offer sacrifices. I am going to pray. I am going to worship. And what's cool is this. It says the joy came after. The sadness left her. What's crazy is this. she's not pregnant yet. It's not this. She went to the house of the Lord and worship. She got pregnant. She had joy. That's not what happened. She went to the house of the Lord. God filled the void that was in her. Jesus became her joy. Her sadness left. The Lord met her. Then she got pregnant. It's crazy. The sadness left. She wasn't pregnant. But something was satisfied deep inside her heart that only the Lord can satisfy in human being, in any human being. She was no longer sad because she went to the Lord in her brokenness. And Hannah's joy, it's like interesting. It's like Hannah's joy did not come from having a baby. Like babies, yeah, babies are joy. But what? fixed her issue of sadness was the Lord touching her heart and meeting her. And then she had a baby. But her joy was she found God in the midst of her situation. Now she can eat because her soul is no longer downcast. Verse 19 says this. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived, and she bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, Samuel, for she said, I asked for him from the Lord. Now, this kind of struck me this week, just stewing on that name, Samuel, Samuel, because last week we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and we talked about how it's called the Shema. And the Shema, Shema means this, it means hear. So Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, it's the most important verse for for Jewish people. We talked about this last week. It says this, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hear, Shema. Now, just to connect dots for fun, a little bit of Hebrew. 
Hannah named her son Samuel. Shem, I don't know, I'm not saying it. Shemuel, which means this, God heard. I asked of God and he heard. So there's the name uh, L on the end there. We talked about this last week, that this is the name of God. God hears. That's what that name means. It means I asked of God and he heard me. Samuel was the child she asked for from God. And, and the Lord listened. Now, I just point that out for fun. Well, I'll point it out further here in a second. The point is this. God answers prayer. When people ask, God hears, and God is one who desires to answer prayer when his people pour out their souls and cry out to him. Jesus said this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and to him who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. But for God to hear us, there first has to be an ask, an ask of the Lord. We have to humble ourselves and ask him, Lord, I am asking you to be the source of supply for this need. But the scripture says often we don't ask. Maybe because we're relying on ourselves or we think we can rely on ourselves or we think that God doesn't want to listen to us or that he doesn't care or whatever it might be. But the Bible says you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. Now, it's interesting. Here's what's interesting. Jump, jump up to that next, next slide. It says, it says this. James said this. When you ask, you ask with wrong motives. Now, the name Saul, Saul means ask for. They asked for a king and the motives were wrong. So God gave them what they asked for. But what's just kind of cool here is this. Saul asked for Shema here. They're turned into one name, Samuel, heard and asked for of God. I don't know. That was just kind of for fun. So the name of Israel's first king, Saul. Saul. Saul is, is the king Samuel anoint, will anoint because the people asked for him. So Samuel is the child that Hannah asked for. Saul is the king the people asked for. David is going to be God's king. He's a foreshadow of King Jesus. Verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her husband until she weaned him. And when she, was, and when, uh, she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and, and the child was young, like we estimate three years old. Okay, crazy. Here's this mom bringing her son to the house of the Lord to leave him there to serve. Verse 25, and they slaughtered a bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and 
he worshiped there. Now, this morning, I want us to just read the, the prayer that, that she prayed. Uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2 goes on to tell us that. We're going to just buzz through it here, okay? So we'll look as she's bringing her son. She's thanking God. God, you opened my womb. You gave me this child. I give him back to you. Here is her prayer. This is an awesome, awesome prayer. She says this, and Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. She's saying, my heart rejoices. Look at, she's giving away her child, but the void of her heart is full. It's full because the Lord has filled it. The Lord is the joy of her heart, and in him, her heart rejoices. She says, the Lord has lifted up my horn. In my, in my mind, I like picture a, a big wild beast like a rhino, like the big male in the pack maybe, and the horn is up, and it's like this sign of his power, and he's going to lift his head and show off the trophy. She says, my horn is, is exalted in the Lord. She says, my mouth derides my enemies. No more can my sister wife deride me. I can boast in God because I rejoice in your salvation. She says, this is the key verse, verse 2. She says, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. I love this. She's like, man, God, you are set apart. Like the Shema, you are the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You are unique. You stand alone amongst the gods of this world. You are a holy God. You are a rock upon which I can build my life and in whom I can trust. Verse 3, she says, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. It's like, man, let those who deride me and mock me and their proudness and their arrogance, let their mouths be shut. And she goes on here to speak and about what the Lord has done for her. And this is a picture of what God is going to do for Israel. But I'm going to say even more than that, this is a picture of what God wants to do for you and I. What God is going to do for all of his people who will turn to him and allow him to fulfill and fill the void of their heart. He says, it says this. It's a great, this is a great reversal. Listen to it. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Jesus said this, that I'm the bread of life, and if you will eat of me, you will never hunger again. He said, I'm living water. If you will drink of me, you will never thirst. As followers of Jesus, we have found a well that will not run dry. We found a source that satisfies forever. She says, the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes the poor rich, and he brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor up from the dust. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. We, we know that. The scripture tells us that everywhere. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Verse 10, 
The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. What? There's no king. At this time, there is no king. Okay, so that's worth underlining. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Underline that word anointed if you've got a pen in your Bible. Do that. Here's Hannah. I mean, when this text begins, her womb is barren and God opens it and she experiences the complete reversal of her personal experience. And in her worship, she lists the reversals that God is going to do as he works in hearts and lives of people. Her story, her personal experience is going to serve as a pattern for what is going to happen in uh, God's people, Israel as a whole. And I think this, like maybe she's a picture of, of the need we have for God to work in our lives, in our day. And she's a great picture of this. Like, what do you do while you wait for God to work reversals? Like, God, I'm waiting for you to bring order here to correct this. Look at what did she do? She prayed. She went to the house of God. She worshiped. She rose up in the midst of her situation and she sought the Lord. That's what we need to do. Turn to the Lord in prayer. And verse 10 tells us prophetically that God is going to raise up a king And it's the king who is going to work reversals on behalf of God's people. In fact, the very last word of verse 10 calls him the anointed, which in Greek, the Christ. In Hebrew, the Messiah. God is going to raise up the Messiah and he is going to work the reversals. Hannah is saying that God's king is coming. And when God's king comes... He will work such a reversal on the face of the earth that he will turn the world upside down, or better, he will turn an upside down world right side up. And it's wonderful that in Scripture, God, as he is is setting the line for his son Jesus to come, he, he uses barren women like so many times in Scripture. It's awesome. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah. You turn to the New Testament, Elizabeth, barren womb. She gives birth to John the Baptist, whose calling was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Barren women are used all throughout the scripture to show us that God's salvation plan from beginning to end, from Sarah to Elizabeth, is a work of his grace. It's an act of his grace. And our God, the one that we serve, the living God, he is the God who gives life to the dead, who calls beings that are not as though they are, who calls things into existence that are not as though they are. He is is the one who makes us born again, who regenerates us by his spirit. And time and time again, God chose barren women to play a key role in the line, the bloodline of Jesus, our Savior. But when Jesus came, I think God might have done this at some point in time. He said, I'm going to up my game. I've used barren women from Sarah to Elizabeth 
But when Jesus comes, I think I'll use a virgin. <laughs> I'll up the game. I mean, that is the ultimate demonstration. If God, you know, opens a barren womb, but how about this? He takes the womb of a virgin and his son comes forth from that womb. The ultimate demonstration that salvation is by the power of God. It's an act of his grace. Now, verse 11 says this, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And we're going to get to know Samuel more in the weeks to come. Let me give you three applications this morning from this text. First one's this, prayer. Hannah rose up. In spite of her situation, she went out and she sought the Lord. And so, you know, maybe I would ask, like, what are you facing that requires God to act? You need God to act. Let me encourage you, go to the place of prayer. Ask, seek, knock. Hannah reminds us, rise up. In spite of your feelings, in spite of your situations, just go there. Second thing is this, worship. Worship is the path to transformation. This is what happened for her. If she would have waited for her feelings, she never would have got there. And so I think, you know, Jesus said this, that he's looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is the path from being barren spiritually to being fruitful spiritually, to be a worshiper. And so in spite of it, you know, we say, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. And we turn to the Lord and worship. So that's the second thing. And then this is the third thing here. Do you have a God-shaped vacuum? Because Jesus can satisfy and fulfill the desires of your heart. Only he can do it. If you're watching with us online this morning, it's great to have you join us. And I I just want to tell you that. I don't know if you know Jesus or not. But I'll know this. You have a God-shaped vacuum, and you may be seeking to fulfill it with all sorts of things. Relationship, substance, possessions. Look at your your design. You're made to know God and be known by God. And the only thing that's going to satisfy that deep longing and desire in your heart is the Lord Jesus himself. And I have to tell you this, that, that each of us, every one of us, lives like we have no king, you know? Doing what we want. The Bible calls that, that rebellion to do whatever you want. It calls it sin. And the Bible says that sin has a punishment attached to it. When you rebel against God, the punishment is this, that you will, you will experience death. You will die. But the Bible also tells us that Jesus, that the Lord loved the world. So he did this. He sent Jesus into the world, the Messiah, the anointed king. And he came. And on the cross, he did something on your behalf. Your act of rebellion against the Lord, he took that punishment upon himself and he paid the price as a substitution for your sin. He died because the punishment of sin is death. Jesus died in your place. He's buried in that tomb and he rose from the dead. And the Bible says this, that if you will turn from that position of rebellion, and put your faith and trust in Jesus, you will be born again. And that desire deep down, that void in your heart, he will fulfill it. 
He will answer it. Do you have a God-shaped vacuum in your heart? Only Jesus can fill it. And so I would just encourage you this. Look it. You got to turn to Jesus. You got to say, Jesus, I don't know. I've tried it all. I'm giving you my heart. I'm giving you my life. And if you'll do that, he will respond to you. Amen.